You are listening to Country Life with Morgan O'Flaherty on Westernwick 102 FM. How are you doing, folks? You're very welcome. You're tuned to Westernwick 102 FM. I'm your host, Morgan O'Flaherty with <coughs> Country Life. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk to a man all the way from the United States of America, um, a fellow with the name of Ron Harmond. Ron is probably responsible for what a lot of us in the tractor world would know as the Big Bud. The Big Bud tractor was built from the mid-70s right up until the year 2000, um, where I suppose just farming practices changed or whatever, and um, they went they went out. Um, we'll talk to Ron. But look, before we get on to that, um, we all know at this stage we have the, the podcasts, which are going very well. We have the YouTube channel, Morgan O'Flaherty YouTube. The podcast is Morgan O'Flaherty Country Life. And um, get on there and check out some of the absolutely fantastic podcasts um, from fantastic people that's there. Um, look, so that's it. We're going to get on because the show is packed. Um, I give an hour talking to Ron and um, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, this is what he had to say. Ron Harmond, um, Big Bud Tractors. So, Ron, um, I suppose, well, I, I know who you are. Uh, you're, I suppose, to me, you are possibly, uh, I suppose, you are possibly one of the most famous tractor people in the United States, if not outside of that and beyond it in the world. You are possibly, I suppose, very much responsible for the big bud and big equipment and all that. And I suppose... I suppose from my from where I'm sitting here, thank you for bringing us the big bud. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. You know, there. I suppose where did where did the idea come from? I I know your big fields. Like even I was watching a YouTube video the last night, and like some of the stuff they had on was just like there was one fella in Nor. It was in Montana someplace, and they had three thousand acres of a field. Like where I am here in Ireland, we're dealing with, I suppose, a hundred, a hundred acre farms. That's what we're dealing with, you know. So we yes. don't, we don't really understand the big, big equipment or the need for it. But you have it there. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I've uh, been uh, through part of Ireland and uh, have a general feel for that. Uh, you know, I think it's all relevant to the fact that you raise a lot on a hundred acres. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot more acres for us out here to, uh, to raise a comparable crop. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the need for larger tractors really came in the prairies, which Montana largely was, and in other states around us back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s when Many of the large ranches were broke up into farms, and uh, these farms, uh, instead of raising, uh, like in your country, we all talk bushels per acre, yeah. you know, we raise 20, 30 bushels an acre. Uh, we're up to an average in this state of around 40 to 50 bushels an acre, so definitely things have improved. but just getting over a lot of acres with one farmer 
uh, has caused the need, I think, for larger horsepower tractors. But, but moreover, as well, I think that uh, what we found, even in areas that uh, they raised a lot per acre, uh, maybe in California and uh, uh, the southern U.S., and uh, in the Midwest, uh, pulling multiple pieces of equipment. I remember back in the mid-70s when I started building Big Bud tractors, and the Big Bud tractor had already been built by a guy named Bud Nelson, where the name of the tractor came from, a friend of mine, and Wilbur Hensler. They were Wagner dealers before in the 60s. Okay, And Wagner was the first articulated tractor sold in volume here in the U.S. And Wagner sold their production, not their plant, but their production to John Deere. And they didn't have a tractor line, and so they started building their own. But one of the ideas behind the tractor line was to build a tractor with standard component parts like you might have in that let's say an over-the-road semi truck so that you could buy parts nationally and internationally and you could also uh, build larger equipment uh, that would allow you to get your work done quicker as well as use one larger tractor instead of let's say two or three smaller units okay, yeah. And I think that's what really brought on the, uh, the market. I remember when we were exporting, one of the first places we exported to was Hawaii, and then after that over to Australia. Mm-hmm. And I remember in 76 going to Australia and finding actually larger acreage than we had here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and the need for horsepower was actually even, even greater. Uh, but I'll use an example of, uh, of a California farmer. I had a California farmer come to me and uh, he bought a 450 horse tractor and a 525 horse tractor in 76 and in 77. And he was explaining to me the fact that he had been trying something where he was deep ripping his ground with a D9 Caterpillar, and he did it every three years on rotation. He had 10,000 acres of cotton, and he would pre-rip a third of it each year. And he really only had about 45 to 60 days to do it between crop rotations. And he asked me if we could build a much larger tractor. And uh, so I said we'd look into it. We tested the drawbar, pounds of pull it took to pull a shank through the ground. And they were pulling at that time five shanks to the ground, anywhere between three tenths and six tenths of a mile an hour. And uh, so we built him the 747 tractor in 77, mm-hmm. delivered it in the spring of 78. And we pulled 15 shanks, but the difference was is we were pulling it at well over five miles per hour. And so we were able to pre-rip all 100% of his ground each year, and his crop increased by 10 or 15%. So the tractor, in in that case, paid for itself the very first year or by the second year. So many times, it isn't just the same farming. Sometimes we're able to change techniques of farming 
like in that case, to do something that they normally weren't able to do. And in turn, we were able to creep his crop, crop production enough to, for him to justify that big tractor. And I think that's generally been true. In some cases, instead of pulling one piece of equipment, we also then uh, have made it so we can hook multiple pieces together. It might be a chisel plow, maybe some harrows, it might be some other piece of equipment behind that. So we can kind of do everything in one one pass. Yeah. Labor, I think, everywhere in the world is a bit of a problem to find good, consistent labor mm-hmm. sources. And so I think that has forced a lot of people. And back in the 70s, the majors were building uh, 200 horsepower tractors, uh, maybe up to 250 and our smallest tractor by 76 was a 350 horse and our biggest tractor was a 525 so we we always have tracked with the fact that by the time the majors get to their size of a tractor that's their larger end but their standard that usually is our smallest tractor and uh so for instance right now the industry is at around 600 horsepower so I really don't even rebuild anything anymore that's less than 600 horsepower. Uh, most of my tractors are six, seven, eight hundred, even up to a thousand horsepower. So, and in some ways, we don't really compete with the uh, major companies building yeah. tractors. We we tend to do something a bit different than they're doing. Um, but uh, you know, over the years, that's worked out pretty well for us. The last production tractors we built was in early 90s, and the tractors we do now are custom-built tractors. In other words, mm-hmm. if you come to me and you have a special need, uh, we will put together a tractor for you or rebuild a tractor for you. Uh, we stopped just building lines of tractors. Give you some data. In the U.S., I'm just talking about the U.S. market, in uh, 1980, there was 10,000 four-wheel drives sold over 250 horsepower. That includes the North American market. So that's yeah. Canada and the U.S. By 1990, that dropped down to just right at 2,000 tractors. So we had an 80% drop. And the reason for it is, is by 1980, the economies of things had really went down. Interest rates were over 20%. Uh, people stopped buying a lot of new tractors. Mm-hmm. They, they continued to use their older tractors. By by the year 2000, that was up to about 4,000 tractors a year. So it was twice as good as it was in 1990, but it's only 40% yeah. of what it was sold in 1980. Yeah. So the only company that didn't go into some kind of a difficult financial situation or merge or go out of business because back in those days, there was almost 20 manufacturers uh, in the U.S. And, uh, but in any event, uh, it's maintained around that 4,000 total tractors in the U.S. or North American market, better said. So uh, we've had to readapt. And so what we learned is, is that taking good high horsepower like a Tiger Steiger or 1156 verse style 
or a big bud tractor or one of the larger tractors built uh, in retrospect we can look back and we can look at it, certain models that were really actually quite good models but they don't have the auto steers and they don't have the hydraulics and so what we'll do is take good tractors not just big buds and we'll rebuild them add the things that are make the tractor a more modern tractor yeah. but without all the electronics right and so what we're really big on is finding good dependable standard component tractors uh we can get into components but i'll just say that every big bud built uh that we built uh you can still buy parts for that worldwide okay uh because we didn't do what the majors do where they try to be in the parts service business, so they only put parts in there that you can buy from them as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and what we try to do is use standardized components. Mm -hmm. And that was true with a lot of other manufacturers yeah. before it became Case IH, Steiger, uh, and Versatile, uh, probably is the one company that's done a pretty good job of maintaining using a lot of standard components out of the majors mm -hmm. these days. Well, we're really down to three manufacturers and when to put Versatile on there, it's four. Uh, and so there's not a lot of competition. I like to relate the tractor business to the truck business. If you buy an over road, over the road truck, you know, in this country, a Kenworth, a Peterbilt, a Freightliner, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, they're all built mainly out of general parts yeah and so if i were building another new tractor today i'd be looking at the mining construction industry not the ag industry yeah and the heavy duty trucking industry to figure out what components i'd yeah. want to use yeah because those parts are widely used so that's that's a little bit about the history uh we found a, a pretty good niche business in rebuilding tractors and mm -hmm. custom building tractors yeah. Uh, we're also a bit of just a normal dealership. We have a couple product lines here, but right. really, uh, the phone calls I get every day are people that have bought tractors since 2011, 2012, where they went fully computerized and they're not really liking that much yeah. anymore with tier four final engines. Uh, and so one of the reasons why we like to rebuild is if we go back to pre nineties and pre. 90s, uh, we're able to uh, take a standard frame tractor that has a serial number on it that's documented, and we don't have to use all the electronic stuff in there to meet standards. And so, serial numbers and when these tractors were built turns out to be pretty important. All right, okay. Yeah, because you, know, you were saying there about rebuilding a lot of the tractors, you know, not so much in Ireland, but next door in the UK. They've gone down the line now of getting away from electronics and they're rebuilding where well, you might know the other TW Fords, the TW thirty fives and even the FWs. They're just gone down the line now of rebuilding them, putting whatever a five, six meter power harrow on it and just that's that tractor's job. And it's it's still it's yes. working out cheaper than buying a two or three hundred thousand horse two or three hundred thousand pound tractor a dollar tractor straight off the shelf line and that's yes. what's starting to creep in here now as well but right going back there you you mentioned the the big board i suppose the big board the 747 now for people that might know it i might know it like i was looking it up last night 
and for people that might depreciate how big this tractor is, this tractor is 25 feet wide. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard for someone from this side of the, the Atlantic even to comprehend a tractor that size or that powerful. Not a mind going back in 1977 to thinking about building a tractor that size. It's just a colossal piece of, of farm equipment. Because like, going back in the, the late 70s in Ireland, you had Massey Ferguson 165s, which are about 65 horsepower, and that was a common tractor. You were talking 900 horsepower, like, you know, there's, like, who, who was behind the thinking of it? I know there was a reason for it, but, and there was a need for it, but, like, how, how did you come around to sit down just to come up with that tractor, like? Well, to, uh, you know, we, we never, there was, there was tractors built in the industries that were a bit for show and go. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that I don't think we ever built a tractor with that in mind. Yeah. Uh, we were trying to fill a need. Uh, we had a particular farmer, like I said, that had three D9s and they went so slow yeah. going that deep that he could only get a third of his acres pre-ripped every year. And so there was a need and we tried to fill the need. And once we got the drawbar pounds of pull needed to pull a shank, we were going between 36 and 42 inches deep. Yeah. And to be able to build it, once you, once you figured out how many drawbar pounds of pull and what horsepower that was going to take and how much weight it was going to yeah. take, it became uh, Interesting. One of the things that Bud Nelson, who was a friend of mine, who was next to my dad's business, mm -hmm. we were in the truck stop business. And one of the things Bud Nelson told me, he said, Ron, uh, if you're going to do this, if you're going to take over the, uh, the, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to take this over, sorry, I had a, another call I had to address there. That's okay. Um, if you're going to do this, think about this. He said, number one, think about the fact that some way, some time down the road, somebody's going to have to fix and repair this tractor. And there's only one thing in the world that's the same on every engine. I don't care if it's a man engine out of Germany or it's a Cummings engine or a cat engine. All engines have to use an SAE standard on the rear mount because they don't know what they're going to hook to. Yeah. It's the only thing that is standard. And so if you know that, then bolt those mounts in even. But if you use that standard mount, then you could put any engine in because the only difference then is the length of the engine. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is an SAE standard is the distance between the center line of the radiator and the front engine mount. That's pretty much an SAE yeah. standard. And so we, uh, uh, in Bud Nelson's day back in the middle 70s, all the tractors were put on a skid system like a gen set. Mm -hmm. So it already had the radiator and the engine, even though the mounts were standard and the transmission mounts. And so if you had a problem in the field, you could open up the grill and slide the engine, the transmission, everything out on a skid system. Oh, right. okay, yeah. And then you could take it in and repair it and take it back out. You didn't have to even haul the tractor yeah. in. Uh, so because the, he was a mechanic, 
he wasn't an engineer, yeah. but he was a mechanic that that dealt with trying to fix tractors in the field. Yeah. So we started there. And the other thing we did on all of our big buds, we had the cab fold up. So if you if you looked at a lot of cab over trucks, you have them yeah. over there as well. And they have a jack system that allows the cab to fold forward. Mm -hmm. We use that same jack yeah. system because it was acceptable worldwide to jack up the cab on a big yeah. bud. So, so if we understand that the only, where most of the technology is at, if you really want to look at, let's say, a farm tractor, the other thing we denoted is most tractors never get more than a few hundred hours a year. Mm -hmm. So if you take a good tractor or a tractor that turned out not so well, uh, you might be out there 10 years or longer to try to figure out hey, that was a really good model, we yeah. really like that, yeah. or hey, that tractor's known for transmission mm -hmm. problems, this tractor's known for engine problems. And so one of the things Bud Nelson told me, he said, Ron, the mining construction industry will put on anywhere from two to 4,000 hours a year. Mm -hmm. So if you get looking at a new model of your tractor, if you look at the mining construction industry, number one, they pretty much use standardized components. It doesn't take long to figure out if you take an engine that's three or four years old, but it's been in the mining construction industry and doing well, you already know it would do quite well yeah. in the farming yeah. sector. Yeah. So I'll tell you a quick story. So I'm going to build this 747 tractor and I haven't forgot what Bud Nelson told me. Yeah. So I went down to some of the mines in Southern Montana and Wyoming, big coal mines and so on. And I said, if I'm going to build a 900 to 1,000 horsepower tractor, what do you have here that is running that kind of horsepower? And they pointed out some big rock trucks and a big Matawak 60-yard crane and in that horsepower range. I started noticing some commonality. Uh, they used a large 2600 series twin disc transmission rated at 950 horsepower. Mm -hmm. I also noted certain engines that were and they had on some of these some of this equipment 30 and 40,000 hours on some of this equipment yes they had been rebuilt a couple of times but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out uh, maybe what might be the best engine yeah. or what might be the best transformation so I brought that information back I knew I needed a large frame uh, but I wanted the tractor again with removable components all bolted in mounts in case these engines or this transmission didn't work out. It didn't want to redesign a new yeah. tractor. And so we put all standard mounts in it. And so that was my Series 3 tractor, Big Bud. And I built all other Series 3 tractors based on that. Mm -hmm. So I knew if I had a transmission, it would run at 950 horsepower. It would certainly run at five or 600 yeah. horsepower. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. after building the 747 and then 78, yeah. 79, I, I took that design, that transmission, axles, some of the other things, and I started building tractors in volume around five or 600 horsepower. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and using some of those real heavy-duty components. So really, in a way, uh, uh, I really piggybacked on the back of large mining construction equipment to build farm tractors. And I, and I did it for three reasons. One, they were already using components that were proven at a much higher horsepower and a much more difficult situation than farming. And secondly, 
I wanted to be able to get into those items that already had had many thousands of hours put on them. So I was I wasn't really having to do an R and D department to figure yeah. out which components I wanted. They had already done it the work for for us. And three, we wanted our tractors so that uh, not only would those components be available worldwide, but we also had a situation there where um, it was cost effective because a lot of the design and a lot of the money that the major companies spend in design and so on, uh, because it, there's one critical factor. If your frame is fully self-supporting, then you can put any components inside that mm -hmm. frame because you yeah. can overbuild the frame thickness. And it's interesting how the egg industry over the years has learned, and these are some quick figures, it takes 100 pounds per horsepower to get the power to the ground, okay? doesn't matter who makes the tractor. And so our thought was if we take a 500 horsepower tractor, it better weigh 50,000 pounds. Otherwise, you're going to go buy some stack weights and you're going to do this or that. Secondly, the majors take, and it's called good engineering to them, but they'll take the engine block, the transmission block, the axles, and they will make all that part of the overall structure. But if you then have an axle that doesn't work out well or transmission, you've already designed that transmission into the overall structure and strength mm -hmm. of the tractor. Yeah. So we made all of our frames fully self-supporting so that we never depend upon the engine block or a transmission or an axle as part of our unitized construction. And we always build the base weight into the tractor. For instance, on the Big Bud 747, it weighed right at 100,000 pounds. Uh, a 500 horsepower Big Bud weighs 50,000 pounds. And there was no weights needed to be added to the tractor to get there. So that became another critical point. So unitized construction with all major components, I can switch out an engine, I can unbolt the mounts out of that engine, and uh, uh, back to engines, lastly, I don't think I explained this part real well, so I talked about the rear mounts. So the only difference of any engine is its length. So we put a one inch thick frame rail inside the front frame with all the bolt holes for all the known engines, oh, and the cross and the cross mount that holds the radiator and holds the front engine mount, you can slide it back and forth inside the frame. Yeah. Any known engine fits in that tractor without any redesigning. Please. And we did the same thing with the transmission mounts. That's a universal mounting system. An Allison will fit in there, a twin disc will fit in there, a 12.513 fuller truck transmission will fit in there. Again, you don't have to redesign the frame because the frame's self-supporting. Yeah. And we put standard mounting in there. So it really makes the tractors infinitely updatable. Yeah. You don't have to switch yes. tractors because you have engine problems or transmission problems. You just buy a different transmission, put it in the tractor, and you can still go. So yeah. that's the concept of what we did and why we did it that way. But it allowed farmers then that might not have went to this large tractor mm -hmm feeling like they could buy a tractor and have it for a long period of time, gear up their equipment accordingly, instead of running two or three small tractors, they're down to one primary tractor that is they're yeah. quite dependent upon. 
Yeah, but what happens here, a lot of times we have a lot of tractors, a lot of big, big, big horsepower to us is 200, 250 horsepower. But the tractor is completely spent out after about 10 years. And then what happens here, it becomes too old for the contractor, it becomes too big for the farmer, and just nobody right. wants it. And it's just, there's a lot of dealerships in Ireland that have a lot of very old, well not very old, 10 or 15 year old, um, 200 plus horsepower tractors that nobody wants. And right. they can't be rebuilt. There's no one well, that's, that's what we're finding here too, and it's a shame that that's the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, because if they make components especially for themselves, they only want to keep that production yeah. going so long and they quit making parts and pretty soon you can't fix them anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I really uh, have got to say that uh, I, I was born and raised on a farm. I, I happened to be next door to Bud Nelson's Wagner dealership. Mm -hmm. So I got to watch that go yeah. on. But it just made a lot of sense to me what they were doing. And when I bought the company, they had built about 20 tractors. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you this story real quick. So I'm, I'm in California. I don't know. I don't know how many tractors can be sold. I don't really know uh, a lot about it. So I take one tractor to California to the Tulare Farm Show, which is a well-known national show in California. And it's a lot of international people show up there for it. So I, I went to the Tulare Farm Show and I took one of my tractors there and I got overran literally with interest in the tractor nationally and internationally. I, that's where I met the people from Hawaii and Australia and other places and a guy from Iran was there. We sold some tractors over there. But anyway, it all came out of that show. But the thing that sold the tractor to these people internationally because I had no no dealers I had nobody over there mm -hmm. was within a short period of time I could convince them that they could service and take care of the tractors in their own countries yeah. or their own areas such as why uh, without depending upon me at all yeah. unless yeah. they needed unless they needed a frame they didn't need me yeah. And uh, so it gave them confidence they could buy tractors uh, without anyone that had a dealer network or had this big network of parts yeah. or parts warehouses because I didn't need them. Yeah. And uh, so that's really uh, started us off pretty well because we had lots of orders and all that. And of course, you, the story of Big Bud wouldn't be complete unless you told the the downside of Big Bud too. Mm -hmm. uh, we were very dependent upon our suppliers and and uh, the guy that we were billing, getting transmissions from, uh, didn't really understand his ability to build these big transmissions. I didn't know that he'd only built about 60 70 of these transmissions a year normally and i just gave him an order for 120 transmissions in 79 and which was a lot more in his production and he he forgot to tell me that he was maybe going to have a hard time building that many and so i didn't i was going to start building transmissions in october of 78 with that new transmission that i had put in the 747 and he didn't deliver any transmissions 
to me until the following August, September. Mm -hmm. I had 90 tractors in the yard, all which were pre-sold, none of which had a transmission in it. And it really put uh, Big Bud into a tailspin. And and uh, so that's when we really cut our production thereafter yeah. and kind of went back yeah. to an order board basis company. But uh, so there's a, there's a downside to these big components because in some cases they don't build a lot you know, the volume that you really need. And so that was our, you know, that really crippled us up. But what was interesting about that, it helped prove up our thoughts about the fact that we went out and then bought up other transmissions with still long lead times. But we started using other components in our tractors because we we hadn't designed just around just that transmission. You weren't dependent on one thing like yeah, so it, it 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 allowed us to you know a very difficult yeah. time laid off a lot of people, and we went from being a production company to a order only company okay. where if you want to buy a tractor you needed to order it ahead of time and we'd put it together for you. Okay, right here, yeah. and like I suppose like we could talk about big buds and we could talk about everything else, but of course. There's also a lot of other big, massive manufacturers out there. There's Steigers, there's Versatiles, there's Case Quadtracks. Of course, like I keep saying, we don't in Ireland appreciate, and even people in the UK don't appreciate the size of some of these tractors. Like these tractors are, they're still in production. They're still there. They're still, they're massive. And like you mentioned Versatile a while ago and a couple of more of them. And I think it's Versatile now or after being um, Kubota were after buying a section of Versatile. Am I right in saying that? And Kubota well, were going. Well, let me let me say it this way. I I guess I don't maybe know every inner working and every financial deal mm-hmm. that's been made. I'm aware that they have some product lines together. Yes. Okay? So uh, I think there is an investment in the Versatile product line with Kubota. So their larger MFD tractors are really versatile built tractors yeah 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 yeah. and but i don't know if that really goes to uh ownership no uh it may be in more of an investment but i i've never been told that they own a significant amount of versatile i will say this that i think that's been discussed in the industry that that probably will happen or will happen and but i don't i don't know that yeah 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 but i suppose you mentioned there a while ago, you mentioned Wagner tractors. I suppose I have a great interest in Wagner tractors, but what a lot of people mightn't realize is Wagner built the first four-wheel drive John Deere's that are out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, back in the 70, 20, 75, 20 days was uh, John Deere's attempt to start building four-wheel drive tractors. But uh, other than their big big two-wheel drive tractors mm-hmm. uh you know uh, i guess the way that i would i would say it is is that wagner was really becoming quite a company and they were mainly in the mining construction industry and a sideline was building ag tractors yes. okay? it wasn't the majority of their business and the John Deere really took advantage of the situation. Yeah. What they did is uh, they bought 
they on New Year's Eve of '68. On New Year's Eve of '68, everybody that was a Wagner dealer got a telegram saying that they didn't sell their plant, but they sold all of their ag production okay. to John Deere, and they were no longer a dealer. So Bud Nelson Stator. wanted to build a tractor. Yeah. Turn on the lights. It's getting a bit dark. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was fading so, away there. <laughs> all right. So basically what happened is that Wagner, uh, after selling their production, Bud Nelson built his first tractor in 69. Mm -hmm. And again, being a mechanic, he built it so you could work on it, standard components, yeah. just like we continue to do. But the other thing that happened was uh, I actually had one of the last guys at Wagner come to me and give me a lot of documents in that period of time. And so I read the documents and the correspondence between Wagner and John Deere, and it went, went like this. They said, now, you really own the rights to the articulation four-wheel drive, don't you? Yes, we do. Uh, and as long as you have that, we're going to make a deal with you because you own the rights to it. They, As the correspondence went on, they found some piece of equipment somewhere that was bent in the middle, and they challenged the patent, and I believe it was an all set up deal in the first place. Yeah. John Deere really wanted to get uh, this primary ag company out of it. Now, remember, they built a mi underground mining equipment, big mm -hmm. logging equipment. The ag equipment was just a, a smaller portion of their mm -hmm. business. And so during the year, by later in 69, John Deere canceled their contract with Wagner, but Wagner had already canceled all their dealers, oh. and it really put Wagner out of the ag business, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. quite intentionally. Yeah. And so that's what really happened, but at the same time, people like uh, Versatile, who was the largest in, in, the, uh, in the 70s, certainly the largest manufacturer uh, by some margin, uh, you know, allowed everybody else to start building articulated yeah. tractors. It kind of yeah. broke the log jam there. But it was unfortunate to Wagner because Wagner uh, really was the leader of that. They started making tractors in the 40s and the 50s. Their original equipment was all called a mobile. Like if it was a tractor, it was a tractor mobile. Okay. If it was a, if it was like a uh, skid steer, it was a scoop mobile and uh they had a crane mobile everything was a mobile and they really were way ahead of their time um mm -hmm. looking at all the products that they built and how well they built them with again standardized components yes. too um so uh wagner was a was a major leader in in the but the tractors were just one one part of it. But they were a major leader in the industry, for sure. Yeah, of course, Wagner tractors now are becoming <laughs> exceptionally, extremely, extremely collectible. And Yes. Yeah. I, I was only looking yeah. last night on the internet, and even the, the W4s, they're small four-cylinder ones, and I couldn't believe the money that they were making. Even yeah. to, to me, they looked rough, but they were probably very rebuildable. And very doable, mm -hmm. but like they were making colossal money. Like they were making serious, serious money if you could get one. Yes. Yeah. 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 We, 
Yeah. And, uh, we, we have a few of them here, and we sell them uh, Wagner 4s, 6s, 9s, 14s, 17s. And I used to have sold it Wagner 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the John Deere Wagners are extremely expensive these days, too, yeah. because they only built something less than 40 John Deere tractors before John Deere canceled. What was that all? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Farty. Yeah. But of course, John Deere, John Deere knew what they were doing at the time. Oh, yeah. They, they were trying to put them out of business. Yeah. yeah. Tell me then, I suppose, if we go to another manufacturer, then I suppose we have no call for it here. We have no need from. But Massey Ferguson, they're completely kind of gone out of the big four-wheel drive market. You know, they're not really in it anymore. No, that's right. And, you know, what's happened here is every company either went bankrupt or merged or went out of business in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than Deere, uh, now Case IH, which is also Steiger, and Agco. And Agco came in and picked up a lot of these companies, Massey being one of them. Mm-hmm. and put them together under an umbrella there and uh you know and then did a deal with caterpillar so the cat challenger line became part of agco yeah. as well and that really became their four-wheel drive line and their track yeah. line um but it was it was the downturn in the early 80s that broke all these companies up and yeah. uh, some of them didn't survive and some of them some of them did yeah yeah of course you in America, you have you actually have a tractor branded Edco. As for we don't yes. here, we if you tell someone Edco here, they refer to it as the brand. We have Fint and Massey Ferguson and Valtra and all them under that brand, but Edco is actually a brand of a tractor in the states. Well, let's let's uh, be careful there. If you're talking about the tractor line, it's called the Challenger all right, okay. tractor line but under the Agco banner. Yeah, okay. It's called the Challenger line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suppose, Ron, um, you're dealing with big buds and all this kind of stuff. Like, okay, they're all collectible in such a way, but you know, we say the more modern tractors, and you've seen a lot of, in your opinion, what, do you, what can you see coming down the line that's going to be the next, I suppose, collectible tractor? the next tractor that people are going to want in their museum or in their barn or in their shed or whatever. There are tractors that are still out there working at the moment, but are going to become collectible. Well, you know, um, it, a lot of people, including an international harvester before it was Case IH, built certain models that there aren't many of, and all of those kind of become collectible. Mm-hmm. But the volume of the collectible tractors are the tractors that we've talked about, and that is uh, everybody's got a, a few things like the earlier old 1200 cases, and so on. all yeah. those are somewhat collectible. But the real collectible ones are all of these small companies like Big Bud yeah. that built a product line, and so. Big buds. I don't even necessarily want to think about them or like to think about them as just collectible. We think of them of them as yeah. as rebuildable and usable. <laughs> yeah. But I have to it. But I have to admit that uh, you know there's some of those are becoming kind of collectible too. 
but Wagner has to be right up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a few other companies like Curtis Wright. Dave Curtis was a good friend of mine. The mm-hmm. Curtis Wright tractors uh, were uh, are starting down that road. But I, you know, you, it's hard to predict of the current built tractors. Yeah. The Agco tractors, the Case IH tractor line, the John Deere line, uh, I don't think we're going to know. But I think, truthfully, the inability to rebuild them and the yeah. cost to rebuild them, I'm going to give you a quick example. Like One of the transmissions I came across of when I started making Series 4 tractors in the middle 80s up through the early 90s was the Fuji Teco 12-speed power shift was kind of new as a power we've been using power shifts uh since the uh 70s we we still still don't trust the power shift yeah the power shifts as long yeah the power shifts as long as you use them out of the mining construction industry yeah you probably had a pretty good product if you decided to build one on your own but one of the exceptions was a company called Fuji Teco. Mm-hmm. And Fuji Teco built a 12 speed that was really quite good. And I found a few of them in the mining construction industry, had lots of hours on them where we're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And the price was really, really reasonable. So they started using them. But for instance, uh, we today, if you have a 12-speed Fuji Teco and a 9380 or 280 or 9180 or 9150, all of those had Fuji Tecos in them, you can buy a rebuilt today for about 19,000 US dollars. If you take that same transmission, they added <coughs> one more gear in a clutch pack and made a 16-speed uh, out of it, which is okay, but in your working range, it only gives you one more gear. Yeah. And the transmissions cost around 50000 to uh, buy a, a different one. And you can still buy the other one for 19000 yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's just kind of crazy. But yeah. they made little changes to every part in that 16-speed that was originally in the 12-speed. Yeah. So you could not buy the parts from anybody but Case IH. So there's yeah. a guy named Ben McIntyre. Fargo Moorhead, big tractor parts. Mm-hmm. He's probably the only other guy doing a pretty good volume of rebuilt components, mm-hmm. mainly Steiger's is okay. his uh, side of things. Mainly Big Bud is mine, but we work together. This, but, this is my Steiger. Yeah, there we are. I like <laughs> That's my Steiger, folks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So I, I really think the longevity, other than a few products that were made that there weren't many of them made yeah uh i really think those 15 manufacturers or so that were in the 70s and in the 80s uh almost any of them are pretty collectible these days because there's not too many of them but unfortunately a lot of them are being parked because of they they still had a lot of components in them that were special only to themselves yeah and we're kind of running out of parts and mm-hmm. all that. Ben McIntyre's taking care of some of those. We take care of some of them. But uh, but it's for us, we kind of like the idea that people are still using them and so on. And so we update the electronics, the hydraulics, 
do upgrades on the tractors so they'll compete with today's tractors in those areas, yeah. which makes them still pretty runnable uh, with current uh, farmers and current usage. Brilliant, brilliant. And tell me, I suppose, Ron, we can't talk to you without talking about that fire you had a couple of years ago there at Big Equipment. I suppose, first of all, I suppose, we know you're a big board, but you became big equipment then. And yes. you had a devastating fire a couple of years ago. In the December of 17, 2017, uh, we had a pretty large shop, about 30-some thousand square feet here, mm -hmm. and offices and so on. That all burnt to the ground. And, of course, we lost a lot of our... Um, a lot of things including a lot of historical things there uh and uh but we've we're in a new office now uh we are uh we then bought a shop further out of town uh in december of 2019 it burned to the ground as well so we had two fires that really set us back but we were we've survived it so to speak yeah. we're certainly not the same size company we were mm -hmm. back then and uh and it's made our life a bit more difficult but because we used all standardized components and parts uh we're rebuilding our inventory back up and and so on and so forth and so we've uh, we've survived that and uh and are moving forward uh uh, size down from what we were, mm -hmm. but we're still up and operating. And uh, so, yeah, that would, with that fire of uh, 17 in particular, the 19 fire, <clears throat> December 19 fire, <coughs> didn't burn it to the ground. We were able to save a lot of things yeah. out of it. It burned up the offices and some other things. So we left and lost some stuff. But that 2017 fire was a total. Uh, didn't get anything out of the building at all. Yeah. Uh, total fire loss. It was, uh, I forget what it was exactly, 30 blowout, and uh, we're, we're out in the edge of town. And so when the fire truck showed up, within minutes, the trucks were froze up and they couldn't put any fire on the building at all. And yeah. just stand back and watch it burn. Oh my so. God. And of course, there was probably tractors and everything inside, and it took us. Oh, yes, we had totally. a lot of equipment inside, yeah. yeah. But I presume you were saying that a lot of the big buds, if they were burnt, a lot of them were probably very much rebuildable or redoable. Well, what's, in, what's interesting about the fire, the fire was a very hot fire. Everything that was aluminum or copper was just uh, melted down to nothing. Mm -hmm. It's a hot fire, but. Because we use mild steel mm -hmm. in our frames, but they're really thick and heavy, yeah. the frames are actually still re re rebuildable. Anything mm -hmm. that was uh, hardened, like a uh, axle component or whatever, it took all the temper out of it and yeah. there's no using that. So we actually have some frames and we have other components that we could actually rebuild into another tractor because they're... Yeah. The the uh, the mild steel strength is still there. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, there was we had many many components and parts and uh, uh, all of that that was lost and and that was uh, that was a little hard to take. But we're we're building back again. It's taking some time. Brilliant! Absolutely delighted to hear it. And of course, I suppose 
you, you also it's not just big buds you rebuild you build rebuild everything and you're kind of an agent for for big equipment really the name the name says it all really and truthfully well i appreciate that you know we're not here to beat up on anybody else that might have built something uh uh, we had uh, certain components that we could talk about that turned out not to be the best, but we switched them out. Yeah. But uh, so we're a little picky about what we'll rebuild. And the reason for it is we have to see that those components, if we rebuild a tractor and put a bit of money into something for a farmer, uh, there's uh, uh, it's much easier to do a Steiger or a Verstyle or a Big Bud. Yeah than it is a name brand because there's so many of the components that are no longer available. Yeah. Even though you could rebuild it, the question is, should you rebuild yes. it? And for the most part, we stay away from those. Mm -hmm. uh, we will we'll, we'll do certain upgrades, but to say that we'll do a total rebuilt tractor, let's say on a John Deere or a Case IH, not very much because uh, what's interesting is if you have a, a pretty clean used Big Bud or Steiger, a lot of these tractors are still selling for nearly what they sold for yeah. brand new, and it's because they're rebuildable. But even there, uh, Steiger, almost every Big Bud is totally rebuildable. Mm -hmm. But on the Steiger side, there were some models that probably aren't the best to rebuild because yeah. they aren't a long-term tractor and certain uh, verse styles. So it makes it sound like we're just patting ourselves on the back, but it's really true that uh, even they got hung up about building certain components uh, that were special only to themselves. Yes. And so today it's not being supported very well. So what we've tried to do with those tractors, and I could name the models, but what we do with those tractors, we know what components you can't get anymore mm. or you're going to have a hard time with. So if we're going to do a rebuild, we won't use that component. We'll have to put the mounts in and change things and change out those components to a generic component mm -hmm. so that it's worthy of rebuilding the rest of the tractor. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, there's a way around. There's a solution to every problem. Yeah. 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 Yes. You know, I suppose. But like, do you feel the market in, you know, you were building Big Buds and Steigers and I suppose all the other ones that all these other brands, these, these, I suppose, will come, not the main brand, but like, is there still a market there, or do you feel there will ever be a market there again for someone to maybe come along and start building their own brand of tractors again, or are they going to just have to stay with the bigger known brands? I think it's gonna be, uh, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think there's definitely a place for Sun to build a generic tractor again. Mm -hmm. uh, where it gets a little bit tough is on the emission side of things. Yeah. They've made it so difficult that it's hard to to uh, to to do. Uh, and uh, but I'm not saying, uh, for instance, without naming names, uh, we've got a couple companies that are building other things right now okay. and they're quite interested in let's say building another big bud mm -hmm. but if i use my old frames then i'm grandfathered in i could put yeah. in these good basic components yeah. so having a 
properly uh, documented frame that's prior to 90. Uh, I, the only reason this happened is I had a large customer, probably the largest farmer in California, buy a number of our tractors. And so as we would ship in these tractors that were partially or totally redone, uh, it all went all the way to the Supreme Court saying that we couldn't deliver those there because California has the toughest laws in the country. And uh, thanks to him, uh, that lawsuit was won. And so we Brilliant. are, are kind of legally and otherwise grandfathered in that yeah. if we're pre-91 tractor, uh, they probably don't have a lot to say about us rebuilding them and putting them in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that can be challenged again, of course. So that's probably one of the reasons, instead of worrying about building complete new tractors again with current year models, uh, rebuilding tractors has become a, kind of an important aspect of, of using a, an older frame to rebuild a tractor into. And the way we built the frames anyway, if we built a new frame, we'd be building the same way anyway. Yeah, you're using uh, the we old wouldn't new be, uh, I said yeah, you're, you're using we'd, the we'd old. be using our, what we call our interchangeable powertrain system yes. concept. Uh, if we build it, it would be built the same way anyway. So yeah. there's not a lot of advantage trying to build a new frame if you don't need to. Yeah, 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 John. Brilliant. And I hope, I hope it'll stay going and I hope that people will, I suppose, that somebody will come up and get out there because like these tractors are fancy. Some of these, some of these smaller manufacturers, they built absolutely fantastic tractors and home built tractors and everything else. And if you go onto YouTube, you can find them, and they're just they're brilliant, yep. brilliant minds. And of course, the yep. versatiles and all that kind of stuff that were all built inside in the sheds at the, the back right. of people's houses. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ron, I suppose that's it. I can't think of any more to ask you. Only it has been a pleasure talking to you. And thank well, you. Thank you. Me. Thank you. I suppose Same here. the only thing I can say to you is it's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you because I suppose your people here talk about Henry Ford and they talk about Harry Ferguson. You to me are, are our own generation, Henry Ford and Harry Ferguson. I hope you take that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, I, yes, I do. And thank you for that. And, uh, but you know, we, we want to thank our customers mm -hmm. and the people that told us what they wanted in a tractor yeah, is yeah. the reason we built them that way yeah, so yeah. it really uh you know it's nice to get that credit but really we got to thank our customers who uh really demanded and wanted a simpler easier to work on larger tractor than yeah. what the majors were doing and uh so those are the real people that uh, made the difference brilliant thank you ron you've been an absolute gentleman well, thank you and appreciate your time today. No, likewise. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Okay. Anyway, bye now. Bye. bye. Guys, that was Ron. Ron Harmon from Big Equipment. Thank you, Ron. You're an absolute gentleman. We really appreciate you coming on talking to us. Um, keep up the good work. And guys, I, I hope you enjoyed the interview. And... Um, subscribe hit that bell and um we'll have more for you cheers bye now
How are you doing, folks? I hope you enjoyed that. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Ron, so, so much um, for giving us the time. We know you have a, a packed schedule over there. And I tried in a couple of times to, I suppose, to connect with Ron, but different things. Either I was busy or he was busy, but um, it all worked out this time for us. And um, thank you so, so much again for the, for the absolutely fantastic opportunity to speak to you. Um, like for anyone that's into tractors, anyone that's into machinery and so on and so forth, like to speak to Ron Harmond and speak to him about the big boats V16 or 16V747, which is rated at 1100 horsepower at the moment. And it's, uh, it is an overall width of 25 feet. That's the width. That's not the length. That's the width. I must figure out the length of it. I, I must get back on to the the google or whatever and figure out the length of it she's the big bud 747 and what we didn't mention in the interview was the big bud 747 when it's out chisel plowing that's the plow that it pulls along behind it um the plow i think is over 80 feet wide um how many chisels is on it i'm not too sure but it's covering roughly an acre of ground a minute one acre of ground every minute like these this, these tractors are going into fields in Montana and South Dakota and places like that, where you're talking there's three, four, five thousand acre fields. There's a video there on YouTube, and it shows the the big boat seven four seven in the field, and the field is three and a half thousand acres. And if you continue, then there's and more tractors, bigger tractors and big boat tractors, and inside more fields, and one of the fields they go into is ten thousand acres like where do you start I, I i don't know what size is west limerick what size is county Kerry? that i don't know how many t acres are in it there's probably 25 or thirty thousand. i don't know how many acres but figure out ten thousand acres of a field three and a half thousand acres of a field the average farm in ireland is probably 100 acres if that but uh thanks ron thank you so so much um for giving us the time and talking to us here on West Limerick Radio. Um, that's kind of it for myself. Um, keep an eye on the podcasts there. The podcast very easy to find. This will be up on a podcast as well later on today. Um, Morgan O'Flaherty, Country Life. Go into Google, go into your um, Spotify, say to your Alexa, whatever you have. And um, Morgan O'Flaherty, Country Life. This interview is also going to be on YouTube. Um, we it was it was an interview i done through a zoom call so um i recorded it through the zoom as well so i'm going to put that up on youtube so you'll have that in youtube as well to look at um morgan o'flaherty on youtube um like it subscribe hit the bell the notification button and there'll be plenty more um on uh, like that and so on and so forth so that's it for myself thank you patrick for putting all this together for us and um editing it out and sewing it and knitting it together uh patrick we'd be lost without you um that's kind of it for myself really um i can't think of anything else to say to you only roll on next week um next week we have let me think next week i think we have dennis hagerty dennis hagerty is a fellow from glynn who has a collection of tractors and he's going to come on and talk to us about his memory i suppose of tractors coming to ireland he the first tractors and i suppose he's he's he has had a love of tractors since since the the 60s or and 
Dennis is coming on with us next week. That's the plan, and Dennis is going to talk to us about that. Um, all right, guys, keep up the good work. Keep 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 tuned in. Morgan O'Flaherty, Country Life, and Morgan O'Flaherty on YouTube. Um, check them out, and um, there's some fantastic podcasts, some fantastic videos there. Um, thanks to some fantastic and amazing people for giving me your time. Um, we really, really appreciate it, and um, hopefully we'll be able to keep going. So um, tune in next Friday morning where we'll speak to Dennis Hagerty, and um, he'll tell us about his his love affair with tractors, we'll put it that way. Um, until then, keep safe, stay at home, keep doing what you have to do, and um, I'll talk to you again. Thanks. Bye now. You have been listening to Country Life, Morgan O'Flaherty on West Limerick 102 FM.